If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free, which for us is really important. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please note that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today, we're talking to Dr. Victor Cisneros. So Victor Cisneros was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, but was raised in Anaheim, California. He received his bachelor's degree in biotechnology and a minor in chemistry and his medical degree and master's of public health and board certification in public health at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He was part of the Program in Medical Education for Latino Community, or PRIME-LC, which is a dual-degree program that focuses on increasing physician leaders who are culturally sensitive and linguistically competent to address the specific needs of California's Latinx population. After medical school, he completed his emergency medicine residency training at UC Irvine, where he was one of the chief residents. During residency, he also served as at-large director and board member for AAEM and liaison to the Diversity and Inclusion Committee and International Subcommittee. He also served as the vice chair for the Social Emergency Medicine ASEP-EMRA Committee. He completed a research fellowship in population health and social emergency medicine, and currently he serves as an attending physician and graduate medical education director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Eisenhower Health. So welcome, Dr. Cisneros. Oh, Dr. R. It's my pleasure. What an intro. (laughs) I know. Very impressive. (laughs) I know. So it's such a pleasure to be here, part of your show. Yeah, thanks so much. So tell me a little bit about how you got into medicine. Like, Do you remember when you first wanted to be a doctor? I do. Actually, this is my second career. Initially, I was a bioengineer. I went to Cal Poly Pomona where I majored in biotechnology and I worked as a validation engineer at a pharmaceutical company in Southern California, Rancho Cucamonga. And I didn't really have much guidance or anybody to kind of guide me through medicine. And I had volunteered in the emergency department as an undergrad, part of like this volunteer kind of project. And I always loved it. I loved the emergency department. I saw that there was a lack of uh, Latinx physicians and people that were in the Spanish language and the community. And I just kind of, at the back of my mind, I always had a little bit of a curiosity of becoming a doctor, but I never had the guidance or anything. And when I was an engineer, I realized that the pay was great. I went into engineer for the wrong reasons. I graduated out of high school and my mentors were like, well, you're good at math and you're good at science. So you should be an engineer. I'm like, sure, that sounds like an amazing idea. And so I ended up pursuing that path, not knowing exactly what it meant. And it's a great career, amazing career, really cool, very rewarding, but it wasn't for me. It was while I was working there that I realized that I wasn't fulfilled and there was something more than just crunching numbers in a cubicle. And I missed that kind of human interaction. And I just looking and just kind of pondering back and thinking what my father taught me growing up was like, hey, always follow your dream. Never follow the money. Always follow your dream because you only live once. So if you're not living your dream, you should definitely change it. 
And I realized I had this epiphany one time where I was sitting at my desk and I was like, this is not where I see myself in the next 10 years. And I didn't have anybody to reach out to. So what does anybody does when they have any questions? They Google it. So I Googled how to become a doctor. <laughs> and I literally, that was like the first thing that Dr. came Google. up. Was it Dr. Google? Dr. Google. And it, a bunch of postback pro- programs. They said, how to become a doctor after you have your bachelor's degree. And a bunch of postback programs came up. And two of them was like UCLA and UCI. And being from a local kid from Orange County, I decided to apply to those two local programs. And I got into UCI and the rest is history and did a postback where I kind of did a year of classes and the year of like shadowing and the MCAT and all the bells and whistles that we all know that takes oh, that to go into medicine. Stuff. Yeah. And so that was kind of where my journey kind of started back in the day. Awesome. And then you became a UCI lifer basically after that. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Only till recently that I had a, a change in the path. Yeah. So when did you decide to go into emergency medicine specifically? I think it was around that time too that I, like I said, I mentioned I had volunteered in the emergency department Mm -hmm. at a local emergency department trauma center. And I was like a candy striper, quote unquote, for lack of better words, just kind of cleaning gurneys and stacking medications. And I just love the emergency department. When I went into med school, I kind of kept an open mind about the process and different specialties because you really don't know what you want to, it's not to like your third or fourth year. Your first two years, you can be in a cave somewhere in the middle of nowhere studying medicine, and it's pretty much the same. It's like your third and your fourth year of medical school, you get a little bit of flavor seasoning of each specialty. But I kind of knew that I loved, I kind of like the spectrum all, it's very, the broad kind of spectrum of medicine that emergency kind of offers. And the fact that it's probably, in my humble opinion, the closest thing that it mirrors to public health. In the back of my mind, I've always had like, a little bit of a curiosity of public health medicine and disparities, just given my upbringing and just things that I've kind of faced growing up. And going through it, I figured like, I want to know a little bit of everything. And when you envision at least myself growing up, I didn't have healthcare, I would go to the emergency department to get care. And when I envisioned a physician, it was an ER doc, a little bit of someone that kind of knew a little bit of everything that you can ask questions and might not be a specialist at any certain specialty, but at least my humble opinion, we're the resuscitation specialist for the first 15 minutes of every specialty. And I think that's in the back of my hand, I kind of knew that's where I kind of belonged. And we're probably the ones that are more attuned to, in my humble opinion, to what's going on in the community, because we see the whole piece of the pie. Versus if you're a pediatric, you're going to see peds. If you're an OBGYN, you're going to see women's health issues. Internal medicine, adults, maybe ICU, we see a little bit of everything. We see from the traumas to the vaginal bleeders to the belly pains to the pediatric patient that comes in. And so I think I kind of learned that during early on during uh, my third year. And then kind of when I took a year off to do my master's in public health, it kind of just re-solidified that. Yeah, I think so often in emergency medicine, it's the people who went through rotations and were kind of like, well, I kind of liked everything. So <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Exactly. I agree. Speaking of public health, you also have a master's in public health or an MPH. So how do you think that becoming a specialist in public health has informed your clinical practice? I think the way medical school is structured right now, it's four years of this compacted amount of knowledge. They say it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. And it does feel like it sometimes while you're going through it. And so it's so compacted that sometimes we forget about, or not necessarily forget, but we have to take away certain things out of the curriculum. For example, our limited exposure in most med schools for biostatistics or even public health or disparities is very limited, maybe one lecture here and there in the four years. So I think getting a master's in public health allowed me that year 
to kind of really dive in, not just into the literature, but the biostats and learning really how to, better lack of words, speak the language. A lot of times people that go into public health and you have a master's, you don't have that clinician side of it and that exposure of how really the hospital runs. If you're an MD, you might know very well, be very well versed on how the clinics and how the hospital runs, but maybe lack a little bit of the common language that public health practitioners use, or maybe the stats or the bio, or how to interpret the literature. And I think it just kind of gives you these little extra tools in the toolbox to kind of be able to speak the same language and cross the bridge between both kind of specialties per se. So I think it's been an amazing kind of extra tool in my toolbox for what I've been doing currently. That makes a lot of sense. I think it does give you just sort of that like additional education that makes interpreting the literature a little bit easier. Because I think that's one of the most challenging things that we do as physicians is really breaking down the literature and recognizing when it's time to change practice based on that or when more studies are probably needed before changing our practice. So you have spent a lot of time learning about and understanding disparities in the medical system. And so were there any personal experiences that prompted your passion for this topic? You kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think immigrant kid from Guadalajara, Mexico, came here when I was two years old, family of immigrants. So I kind of know what these... I've actually lived these disparities on a personal basis. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to lack a roof on top of my head and not know what... I guess, for lack of better words, I know what it is to be homeless for a little... There's parts of my childhood that I know what it is to not have a house and be living in a garage or doing my homework in the back of a car because we didn't have a place. So I think definitely my early experiences just kind of growing up in these conditions definitely sparked that interest and that fire that just kind of grew as I kind of learned more about these disparities and how important. So not only did I just live it myself, but then at the same time, kind of studying them has ever kind of increased my passion for it and that fire that was growing in there. That's such a powerful story and has probably given you so much more compassion and empathy and ability to really relate to a lot of what our patients go through in the emergency department. Because so often, the ER really is the only place people can get medical care. So I love what you're bringing to the specialty. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I was one of those kids that didn't have a primary care doctor that would go to the nearest children's hospital emergency department because I was like sick and my parents didn't know the language or didn't know how to maneuver the system or even knew that we qualified for some sort of pediatric health care at the time. And so if you're not really versed with the language or this is not your main land where you kind of grew up, it's kind of hard navigating the system. It's hard enough as physicians yourself. If you've ever, anybody has ever experienced a healthcare system, it's hard when you're versed. So imagine when you're not and you're coming yeah. into an unknown territory, no known language, unknown culture. And I think it's very difficult. So yes, I'm very empathetic and very understanding. And I can relate to many of our patients that we face and encounter in the emergency department on a daily basis. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit because you and I had talked about COVID-19 a little bit before we were planning to do this episode. And so we recently passed a sobering milestone of 700,000 deaths in the United States due to COVID-19. And this pandemic in particular has really emphasized a lot of the disparities in our medical system. And so Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities in particular, especially in rural areas, have been disproportionately affected. So with your sort of public health hat on, why do you think this is? 
Yeah, you kind of alluded and you hit the nail on the head. It's not that these, it's not that COVID is some new magical virus that is targeting specific ethnic backgrounds or specific DNAs. It's literally what it, this virus has done is has kind of lifted the veil of what the disparities that already existed, the underbelly that most people maybe weren't aware or maybe the public wasn't aware of, but has already existed, which is these communities and the different ethnicities have always been marginalized. The Hispanic, African-American communities, the Latinx communities, a lot of the rural communities that don't have equitable health care, because it's not just about access, it's about equitable health care. And so there's a lot of disparities that have already been there that this virus just exacerbated, like food insecurity and housing and a lot of marginalization. So it's not something new. I No, in particular. I mean, when you really start to look at how systemic this is, you can look at sort of the higher risk of underlying conditions like hypertension, diabetes, obesity, because of the concept of food deserts where there isn't healthy food available. So people are eating more processed and just sort of worse for you food. And a lot of the hospitals are under-resourced or if people are in rural areas, they lack access to hospitals. So I mean, there are so many issues that already exist in the medical system. And like you said, I think that's just really the pandemic has highlighted a lot of that. Definitely. I mean, as you know, we trained it in Orange County. Orange County tends to be an affluent county in California. And most people don't know that one out of four kids go hungry every night. And this is before the pandemic where it was going home. It was suffering a food insecurity. And this is a county that gets overshadowed by the county, which tends to be very affluent. And a lot of times you can't even imagine what's going on in Riverside County, San Bernardino County, which is even more. So these are kids that at least were being guaranteed a meal at school, right? They would go to school and their parents are like, well, at least they're going to be guaranteed a meal at school. Now you have a pandemic that hits. Kids don't go to school. Parents that are already struggling to live paycheck by paycheck or relying on this food source from school, now their kids are not even guaranteed this meal, right? So think about how that exacerbated already the disparity that was existing with this just, for example, this pediatric population, not talking about adults. But now think about most people are not even thinking of what's going on right now. The fact that this virus has targeted Latinx population, who's the biggest producer of our produce? Who are the farm workers that are working in our fields, right? Picking our tomatoes or strawberries or oranges in the valley, right? It's mainly Latinx, Spanish-speaking immigrants. And these are the communities that are being hitting hard. So the economical after effects that we're going to see is going to be huge because nobody that is going to go pick strawberries or oranges in the middle of nowhere for under par working conditions and possibly not even fair pay. And so if you look at it a lot of different ways, this pandemic has just lifted the veil to the underlying issues that a lot of people would maybe turn a blind eye or weren't necessarily aware. But a lot of us that are studying this and have been studying this, I've known these issues were there. Yeah. The CDC reports that Hispanic, Indigenous, and Black people are at least twice as likely to die from COVID-19 compared to non-Hispanic white people. However, I should also note that white people account for a higher number of deaths because they're the largest demographic group in the United States. But 
I think you kind of touched on it a little bit with jobs, but why have these groups been more vulnerable to COVID-19? It's, they're the ones that probably suffer the most comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. They're the communities that have less access to care. And if they do, is it equitable care? As we know, some insurance is hard to see your PCP. Yes, you might have some government insurance, but what might take you three or four months. And we've experienced this, that's ER docs, where if you worked at a place where you see a lot of underserved patient population, to get them to see their primary care doctor sometimes is impossible. And you're relying on these community clinics. So is it really equitable care, right? Versus someone that might have very a PPO insurance could easily get their diabetes medications managed versus the guy that might run out of their metformin and go into DKA. So you have these underlying medical conditions already, such as obesity, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and then you add the stressor of COVID or an infection, and yet you don't have the access to care, equitable care. Of course, they're going to be way more affected than someone that is not going through all these issues. Absolutely also potentially lack of ability to social distance. Like a lot of these populations have jobs that you can't work remotely. You have to show up in person. And that I think can also contribute to a lot of the increased spread in these groups as well. A hundred percent. And a lot of these communities live in one bedroom apartments in close counters, not because they choose to, because that's all they could afford. And so You talk about our homeless population, all of a sudden housing was a huge thing. And all of a sudden, these foundations were coming in for the homeless population because they realized that it was a huge issue, right? Versus prior to this, let's be honest and frank, people have existing housing issues have existed all over the U.S. But what did this virus do? It brought it to the, highlighted the underbelly of what was going on. So another statistic from one of the papers we were talking about was the Rural Policy Research Institute at the University of Iowa recently published data showing that one in 434 rural Americans have died from COVID-19 compared to one in 513 people who died in more urban areas. Again, I think we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but I think it's just such an interesting statistic. And Like in rural areas, you sort of expect that it's a little easier to social distance, I guess. But I think so many of the factors we've already discussed and probably a few we haven't also influenced this. Do you have any thoughts on this as well? No, I mean, I think we've kind of touched base on it. It comes all down to the social determinants of health, in my opinion. Some of these rural areas have problems with access. You're you're not going to drive. Imagine if... 200 miles to... Exactly. To go to the nearest hospital or the nearest clinic when you're like out in the middle of nowhere. And if you get a virus, you're probably going to pass away in your house or you're probably not going to go. You might be able to social distance. If you're hypoxic, you might not make it. Or EMS, there might not be a good EMS system that can get to your house on time if you're struggling. So it's a multifactorial, and it all comes down to the social determinants of health, which is a big umbrella of like multiple factors that affect us in public health. One thing we haven't talked about yet, in many of these communities, there's a distrust of the medical system that goes back to unfair experimentation. For example, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, Or even further, we could talk about the spread of smallpox to Native Americans. So how has this mistrust affected vaccination rates in these communities? Huge. I mean, I think it's huge. Obviously, as you've mentioned it a lot, I think in my opinion, there's two types of people that are very, and I don't want to say anti, maybe afraid of getting vaccinated. 
There is the population that's very politically driven based on political propaganda and myths that the virus is whatever you want to radio control chips. And that's one extreme population. Then you have the other patient population that tends to be more minorities, as you kind of mentioned from like, even the data shows this, you see some of the data shows that like almost like white Caucasian patients tend to be 1.3 times higher rate to being vaccinated. This is by like the CDC recently in like, I think October 4th or something like that, like recent, not that long ago that showed some of this data. But I think my opinion is that it's their fear. I mean, a lot of the minorities have been marginalized and experimented by the government and they don't trust the government, right? You mentioned two studies, but you look at Latinos, the Bracero program back in the 50s and 60s, where they would spray them with like pesticides and certain things. Obviously, another issue which most people don't necessarily mention is documentation. A lot of Latinx populations that are undocumented, they're afraid to go get vaccinated because they're like, I don't want to be deported. Many of these populations, to the contrary of this, some political driven agenda, they don't want to be a strain in society. They want to come and work. They want to make some money for their family and better themselves. And they want to be under the radar. They don't want to be on the highlight. So for them coming out to say, I need the vaccine, even though they might want to believe it, they're afraid. They're like, if I do this, could I get deported? And I think it's important for us as physicians and public health practitioners to make awareness that, hey, we shouldn't be asking about status or documentation. People should be vaccinated, should be free for everybody, should be accessible. We should be educating our community and should be educating our patients, especially those immigrant patients that, hey, this is not going to affect your stay here in this country. No, we're not going to ask any questions. But unfortunately, you have certain states that sometimes you get pulled over and they ask you for documentation. So imagine the fear. Why would they go to a testing center or a vaccination center where potentially there's going to be government officials that could potentially ask them where they were born? And then the fear alone, I think, is also a big factor. Yeah, there was an article published in The Lancet in April of 2021, and the authors touched on that topic specifically in that vaccination in particular should be available without regard to immigration status or anything like that. But they also really said that prioritizing community-centered engagement is really, really important because different communities have different perceptions about why the vaccine may or may not be good or bad. And so you have to really look at each individual community and figure out where those questions are, how to address those questions, and then help create a more trusting environment, particularly with communities that have been marginalized historically. 100%. I agree. So in the U.S., we have an abundance of vaccines available at this stage. However, there remains a great deal of vaccine hesitancy. Alternatively, in many under-resourced areas of the world, there's interest in vaccines, but they may not be available or just becoming available now. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of vaccination in general as a public health effort, like beyond eradication of diseases like smallpox or near eradication of polio. There are many other reasons that vaccinations are important for public health. So I would just love to discuss those a little bit. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm not a vaccine expert by all means, if I was immunologist, but I think for sure the herd immunity, obviously if we protecting ourselves and vaccinating ourselves, giving us herd immunity will eventually protect others, those that don't have a choice. Like maybe some of the kids that are currently can't get vaccinated because the vaccine is not available or maybe immunocompromised patients, right? That potentially can't get vaccinated because they can't elicit an immune response or 
maybe whatever X or Y reason, it might not be beneficial. So there is a subset of population that we know that the vaccination might not be adequate. But I think in that aspect, what I wanted to touch base to particularly, and I think the thing that we can do as physicians and you touch based on it is, is we got to target. It's not a cookie cutter solution. You hit the nail on the head again. It's like, you have to tailor the solution to every community, right? The African-American community has a specific need, knowledge, and interest on how they see the vaccination. The Latinx community, by all means, you can't have a Caucasian guy saying, hey, I'm going to go get vaccinated. You have to have someone in the community. For example, the idea of promotoras and promotores coming in the community and speaking to small gatherings and talking about the importance of vaccination, what the vaccination is, educating the community, why, and dismissing some of these myths that it's going to stay in your body forever and it's like going to cause infertility. And it's because a lot of times they get their knowledge base from the media. A lot of the Spanish speaking stations are very- social media. Social media. And they're very polarized too, depending on, you have very polarized conservative media and very polarized liberal, kind of like we have in the English speaking kind of media- And a lot of times, as we know, it's not, unfortunately, these days, a lot of these reporters don't fact check a lot of the stuff. And some of the things people propagate are necessarily not facts, but people resonate and they hear that and they're like, and then it creates fear. So I think the importance of education, specifically tailoring it to certain communities and certain needs. I know Latinos, Latinx community kind of work more to local leaders and they listen to maybe religious leaders or local mm-hmm. leaders in their communities like promotoras and things that's worked successfully in other ways and other stuff in public health. And then trying to disseminate some of these myths is the third thing. Yeah. So I guess you've sort of already talked about this, but what do you think is the best way that physicians can help engage some of these communities and help promote a greater trust? Yeah. I think I kind of touch base with some of the stuff that I kind of mentioned right now. But in addition to this is kind of us being active in social media and kind of fighting, I guess, fire with fire, for lack of better words. We need to go out there and have a voice. A lot of times, many of us obviously we're really good at our jobs and we try to, we're very passionate, but we're afraid to be vocal about certain things. I'm not saying you have to be politicized or political, but on social media, just disseminating, hey, this is why and just showing a picture of yourself getting vaccinated and then opening it up to question. I know I've been doing that a lot on social media and trying to post things, facts, trying to go out there, maybe going to your local community, your local high school, your local gyms, your local community leaders. Maybe if you're a religious person, going to your local church and kind of saying, hey, if you need me to talk about vaccinations, I'm open to kind of talking about this. And not in any sort of like confrontational way and trying to convince people and sort of, but just presenting the facts. And these are the facts as a physician. This is some education out there and just kind of being proactive. I think our community deserves that. We, as physicians, we're not just physicians one patient at a time, but we're, I think, responsible for the community we serve around us, right? Because you treat a community is way more impacting than treating one person at a time. And we have that moral responsibility. We all went with our the Hippocratic Oath, right? And I think sometimes just doing no harm doesn't necessarily mean doing the wrong thing. It just means sometimes, hey, not being proactive when you're seeing myths and propaganda that is completely wrong, that people are disseminating the way. I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that sometimes people don't believe in science now. And even though we have evidence of, like you just mentioned, back things that we've eradicated with vaccines, 
And people don't believe that now because of things like social media and media. So I think we have a moral responsibility to kind of educating our communities and our patients. We should be leaders, educators, and community leaders too. Yeah, you made so many great points. But I also really think it's important to, like you said, ask questions. Because so often as physicians, I think we go into a room, we ask the questions that we want answered, and we figure out what we need for our diagnosis. And we're like, okay, that's all I need. But so often, I think we forget to ask the question, like, what do you think is going on? Why do you think this is a problem? Do you have any questions about vaccines? What is preventing you from getting a vaccine? Rather than saying, no, vaccines are great, and this is why, and these are the facts. So I think there's a lot that we can do also to be a little more intuitive about what's going on with these communities and trying to figure out where the hesitancy is coming from or what questions they have that are preventing them from getting vaccinated or pursuing any sort of health intervention. Yes, no, 100%. I agree. No, definitely. So what do you think is one of the most important lessons that we can learn from the pandemic to take forward into the future and help improve medical relationships and community relationships? Such a loaded question. There's so much, (laughs) so much that we could learn from this pandemic. I feel so many different levels to how our government works and how vaccines work and how our community works and even the power of social media and the not the negative effects that it can have. I think there's so many ways that we can learn. But I think if I could summarize it, I would say that you mentioned it is that not every patient that we treat and that comes in, it's not as simple as a diagnosis and treatment and medicine is more complex. And this is where public health is really important. You can diagnose and treat someone But that's only kind of sometimes putting a Band-Aid, right? If you're diagnosed someone's diabetes and you sprinkle some metformin and some insulin, but did you really get to the root of the cause of the problem? No. It's literally, in my humble opinion, you're putting a Band-Aid to the problem, to the bleed. But the underlying issue is the person needs education and maybe diet, exercise, maybe doesn't have the ability to afford a gym or maybe can't walk to work because of the living conditions, right? A lot of us... It's we live in nice communities and it's easy for us after dinner to go nice walks with our family and our kids. Some people don't have that. They live in urban areas where there might be a lot of crime and walking after dinner at night might not be safe. So how can you tell your patients, hey, you should walk 30 minutes every night when they can't afford a treadmill, when they can't afford a bike, when they can't afford a gym, or they can't even afford to go outside and walk because it might not be safe, right? So again, just diagnosing them with diabetes and giving him a medication. I mean, obviously that's important, but it's not the underlying cause. And I think what this pandemic has, again, lifted the veil is that we have a lot of public health work to do. And then we have to kind of think of medicine as not just one patient at a time, but a macrocosm of the community and trying to address these social determinants of health that are directly affecting our population health, both at the individual and community level. Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, in medicine, we become very focused on waiting until a disease occurs and then treating that disease. But what I think you really highlighted is focusing on ways that we can prevent disease before it ever happens. And like you said, that starts at a community level and it starts with much larger interventions than just adding a medicine at the end of a visit. So any final thoughts or advice before we wrap this up? 
This is an honor and a pleasure to be here. I hope you can invite me back and I look forward to listening to more of your episodes. I think this is amazing. I think as physicians, we need to explore other areas like this. Whatever might be your niche or your passion, most of us have other niches and passion besides medicine. We need to explore these. And I just wanted to say congratulations for this. This is an amazing experience and you're doing an amazing job. Thanks so much. Well, Dr. Cisneros, what is your Instagram and do you have any other ways that our listeners can follow or connect with you on social media? Yeah, no, you can follow me on Instagram at dr.vcisneros, dr.vcisneros. You can follow me there. And I usually try to post a lot of, currently, obviously, COVID is the highlight, but I try to post about disparities, equity, public health, and they can feel free to ask any questions or seek any advice. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, or connect with us on Instagram at The Emergency Docs or on our website at www.theemergencydocs.com. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Until next time. Thank you.